can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handled them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Ready? Okay. Give me a beach. Beach. Give me great food. Tacos. Give me adventure. Hiking. Give me a date night. Sunset cruise. Give me some smiles. Cheese. Give me more beaches. Beaches. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Pushkin. By the time you hear this, I will be in an airplane exiting the United States. This is your captain speaking. It will be my first non work trip since August. Flight crew, please prepare for our departure. The irony at the heart of this season of chat episodes is that I've been talking to travelers, but I've been stuck at my desk. While I've been talking to people, who've traveled all over, Ghana, India, Naples, Bora Bora. I haven't gone further than exit four on the Jersey Turnpike. Mostly, I've spent my days in New York. Oatmeal with blueberries, laptop, 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 overpriced salad, laptop, meeting laptop, some elaborately made dinner as a form of procrastination, laptop, Washing the dishes on good days? Bed. Now there's some positive things about not traveling. My laundry is done. My credit card bills are pretty low. For the first time, I've been able to respond to spontaneous invites to dinner with friends. And I could finally buy hair products over 3.4 ounces. But to be honest, I was starting to become homesick. Not in the I miss my own bed kind of way, because I did not miss my bed, but in the I'm sick of my home kind of way. I've done every chore, visited every local shop, walked every inch of my local park, streamed and schemed, but after being at home for a few months, my feet were beginning to itch. In a metaphorical sense, because honestly, my feet haven't been cleaner. Yes, over the course of this season, my guests have talked about travel as a means of self-development, as a means of understanding humanity, as a means of escape, as a way of learning, 
and my instinct to travel could be a bit of all those things. Or maybe I don't need to overthink it. Perhaps I'm just one of those people who is genetically predisposed towards wanderlust. Or maybe the answer is at my next destination. If it is, I'll be sure to let you know. Anyway, I have my ticket in my blazer. I booked a window seat. I'm prepared to yield the armrest to the person in the middle seat if needed. I have plans for my destination, but they're not too specific. I won't turn my nose up at a tour, nor will I overthink what I'm doing. In short, I'm going to try to deploy all the knowledge I've gained this season. And yes, I might try to finagle a dinner invite too. In the meantime, we have an excellent valedictory episode of Not Lost Chat for you today. Celebrated travel writer Pico Iyer is here to talk about paradise. And musician, comedian, and performance artist Reggie Watts stops by and lists what he thinks of when he thinks of me. Pragmatism, practicality, uh, preparedness, um, helpfulness, flexibility, dynamicism. I feel seen when Not Lost Chat returns. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handled them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member FDIC. Hello, hello. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. Let me tell you an unconventional story about a healthcare group that wanted to improve their efficiency. Boston Children's Hospital. They were already a leading pediatric facility. Their patient outcomes, workflows, and delivery of care were already great. But they wondered, how can we make it better? So the hospital got to work. Their idea was to build what they called clinical mobility, meaning a system which would allow their staff to access information and interact with patients on mobile devices anywhere in the hospital. And what made that possible? 5G. The hospital rebuilt their entire system with 5G technology at its core. That infrastructure now supports thousands of phones and tablets so practitioners can communicate with patients on a whole new level. Boston Children's also made sure the system could flex and scale to handle medical advancements like robotic surgery and virtual reality for training and research. This was worlds away from how they had previously operated. This innovative work hasn't gone unnoticed, first by patients, but also by their peers. Boston Children's was a first place winner in the industry category at last year's unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business, an event that celebrates customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of innovation. If the Boston Children's story rings a bell with you, if your team has asked the same questions about building a better business solution, I encourage you to enter this year's awards. It's a great way to be recognized for smart, disruptive thinking in front of some of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. 
I'll save you a seat. Ready? Okay. Give me a beach. Beach. Give me great food. Tacos. Give me adventure. Hiking. Give me a date night. Sunset cruise. Give me some smiles. Cheese. Give me more beaches. Beaches. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Welcome back to Not Lost Chat. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Later in the show, performance artist and musical savant Reggie Watts comes by to answer your travel questions. But first, I speak with the doyen of contemporary travel writers, Pico Iyer. My editor warned me that that word was a little too precious, but I think it's perfectly accurate for Pico. He has written 15 books about everything from the Cuban Revolution to globalism. Some of his bestsellers include Video Night in Kathmandu and The Art of Stillness. And he also writes, on average, 100 articles a year for various publications, including The New York Times, The Financial Times, and others. Plus, and this is my favorite part of his bio, he splits his time between a Benedictine hermitage in Big Sur, California, and an apartment with his wife in suburban Kyoto. And here you thought having separate bedrooms was the secret to a long relationship. Pico's most recent book is The Half-Known Life in Search of Paradise. And in that book, he travels around to 10 places across the world, places like Iran, North Korea, Northern Ireland, Kashmir. And if you're getting the sense that these aren't the typical places travelers associate with paradise, you're not alone. I had the same feeling. And when I met with Pico... I asked him about it. I said, you know, if I didn't know any better, I would assume you were being cheeky about the search for paradise. You're absolutely right. I mean, I've been lucky enough to be traveling a long time. And so, of course, when you step into a travel agency, everywhere is presented as Shangri-La or paradise. And when I was young, I would go to Bali and later the Tahiti, the Seychelles, Antarctica, all the places that are commonly thought of as paradise. And what's paradise for the visitor often isn't for the local. If I were to ask mm. one of them, what's your notion of paradise? They say, oh yeah, paradise is Santa Monica. It's New York City. It's that place across the ocean. If I go to somewhere that really does feel very content and self-contained and unfallen, what do I have to offer to it? I Only corruption. I am the, the serpent in the Garden of Eden. Uh, and of mm. course, everybody's sense of paradise is different. So Probably the best way of answering your question is this book arose out of the pandemic and uh, 20 hours after lockdown was announced in California, my 88-year-old mother was raced into the hospital in an ambulance, Mm. losing blood very quickly. And when she came back, I flew through these three ghost town airports from my little apartment in Japan to be with her. So there I was sitting with my mother who was wavering between life and death and the whole world in this state of anxiety and lockdown. And I was thinking... Well, the only paradise I would really believe in is one that happens in the middle of real life and in the face of death. In other words, given that life is always going to throw difficult things at us, how can we find our paradise in the midst of that difficulty? Mm. And so, as you said, I thought back onto the places of conflict and the many war zones I'd been to, and I thought uh, maybe there is a durable paradise that can outlast even the harshest forms of reality. 
The book begins in Iran, and you know there's a repressive regime there. There isn't a hot war, although there have been really intense protests of late. But there's a couple reasons you went there because it also the origin of the word paradise, if I'm understanding you, also comes from Persian culture. Exactly so. And also, I think the second reason is it's a perfect way of seeing conflicting visions of paradise. Because, of course, as, as you were suggesting, the oppressive <laughs> Ayatollahs who rule Iran maintain that paradise belongs only to the faithful. And the place called Zahra's Paradise in South Tehran is actually a graveyard, one of the largest in the world, with 1.5 million dead bodies there. And meanwhile, as the protests remind us, so many of the citizens of Iran are constructing their own paradise behind closed doors, which is a very secular, worldly place of sex and drugs and rock and roll. And then <laughs> <laughs> both sides, meanwhile, are quoting from the Sufi poets that they learnt in high school or elementary school, who remind us that the only paradise you can find is within, which I think at some level everybody knows. But as you say, Iran doesn't sound like a honeymoon location. But as soon as I got there, though I'd been studying it for 30 years, every hour of the next 16 days was full of surprises. And one of the surprises mm. is that if you're staying in a garden hotel in the desert city of Yazd, and you step out after nightfall, and there are sweet-smelling flowers all around, and there are uh, fairy-colored lights in the trees, and you're led to this beautiful divan, and you stretch out, and an elegant waiter brings you slices of sweet watermelon and a pot of strong tea, and all around you there are beautiful, soft-eyed people exchanging murmurs. My heavens, it's as close to an earthly paradise as anything I've seen. And you know, the Iranians or the Persians for thousands of years have been building gardens that are meant to be a replica of paradise and an enticement to the paradise of the afterworld. And to this day, they're as, as idyllic as anywhere I've seen on earth. You also mentioned as uh, another fascinating detail is that in your notes, you would refer to Iran as paradise in case your notebooks were reviewed when you left or in case your emails were being read. And so you had to kind of veil Iran as paradise in your communications. Yes, I had to become as veiled uh, and complex <laughs> as the society around me. So Because I think the first day I arrived there, I arrived in the holy city of Mashhad, and it was so surprising I wanted to tell my friends back in the US. So I went online, no problem sending emails. By the third day, my email account was completely blocked. So I was positive that some poor <laughs> lackey mm. in, in Tehran was being asked to read my every email. At the same time as my email was blocked, I could go down to the hotel computer and send emails at any time. But realizing that somebody was reading them, I thought it was prudent to say, this is the most wonderful place on earth. And so in that culture where everything is taking place between the lines and beneath the words, I quickly realized I had to be the same. And I had to pretend to be something that I wasn't. It was the most interesting, sophisticated, rich place I've ever been, the number one destination of my life. But I did always feel that somebody was looking over my shoulder and it was wise to be vigilant. And when you say it's the most interesting place you've ever been, that is high praise since you spend a lot of your life traveling. On that point about traveling, how, if at all, do you think that your living betwixt and between places affects your view of paradise? Well, it changes my relation to home because you're absolutely right. I grew up in the passageways and crisscrossings between cultures as the child of Indian parents, born and growing up in England, moving to California at seven, and then 
from the age of nine, commuting back and forth every few weeks between England and California, and now living in Japan for 35 years on a tourist visa. The space mm. in between is my, my home, and I'm very comfortable there with one foot inside and one foot outside. When I was a little boy, I was the only dark-skinned kid in all my classes in England. So I never guessed then that what was so unusual at that time would be the norm. I think if I go to a classroom in San Francisco, I bet 40% or maybe more of the kids would be just as in between as I am and have lots and lots of cultures uh, inside them and around them. And I think that's the great beauty of this new century. Um, I do think, as you say, it's not a paradise. It, it, for many people, it's a purgatory, not being able to define themselves in a clear way. For me, it just reminded me that home had nothing to do with any physical location. It had to be what lives inside me, my, my mother, my wife, the songs that go through my head, the books I carry around with me wherever I go. And I'd always felt that. But actually, when I speak of purgatory, this book came out of the lockdown, as I was saying, and that was an in-between time, essentially, like the in-between spaces where I've lived. And in that in-between time, I was thinking, and I'm sure many other people were thinking, well, this is a time of uncertainty. We can't go anywhere. We don't know what's coming over the horizon. How can we make it as close to paradise as possible? How can we make ourselves warm and cozy in this state of, of, of anxiety and unsettledness? I wonder, when you're going to places to write about them, there is a certain amount of fantasy. You arrive with an assignment, you arrive to pay attention, but you don't have to get too involved in the mundane. And I'm wondering if that, in a way, gives some sort of artificial feeling of, you know, uh, you're, you're unburdened by certain mechanics of life because you are just always kind of on assignment and adrift. Well, you're right. I mean, a tourist is always carrying an artificial paradise around with him. And yeah. there's this disequilibrium because we arrive in Bali. And as you say, we imagine we can do anything we want. We're free of obligation. We're on holiday. And the people we're meeting are desperately trying to make a living. So I've always felt that you know, the traveler is living in a sort of false paradise of projections and illusions. Yes. You visit Kashmir which you described at one point as the paradise that's shown in your mother's heart. Mm. And that is such a beautiful chapter. I don't know if that's why it, it's such a beautiful <laughs> chapter in this book, but I do think the duality of the water versus the land there versus the political situation versus the hope uh, and tourism's role. Could you speak about Kashmir and how it fits into your kind of search for paradise? Yeah, no, that's so beautifully said, Brendan. I mean, you, you caught it perfectly. So, uh, yes, as you said, I grew up on my mother's remembrances from 1941 of the, the lake under the snow caps and the fields full of alpine flowers. And it was a magical place for her growing up in Bombay. And when finally I made it there a few years ago, I stayed on, as every traveler does, on a houseboat on Dar Lake. Mm. And there was a lotus pond right outside my window. And there was no sound but the whir of kingfisher's wings. And people <laughs> would paddle slowly past, bringing curries right to the doorstep or beautiful, intricate, carved boxes. And it couldn't have been more peaceful and heavenly so long as I 
screened out the fact that, just as you said, 10 minutes away on land, there were 500,000 soldiers keeping an uneasy peace in a violent and occupied place that for 70 years has been fought over by India and Pakistan. And again, that's part of the hazard of being a paradise. Everyone wants to claim you. And uh, there are lots of people fighting over the same territory. And so I thought, well, this is uh, it's a paradise so long as I ignore the reality for the Kashmiris, which is a very tragic uh, reality. In that chapter, you also, you describe a lot of the people you meet and what you learn from them. And I think a more personal kind of um, duality that one Mm -hmm. has to exist with in order to find peace. Uh, I think the character you encountered, his name is Johnny. Is that correct? Yes, yes. Yes. And, And can you talk a little bit about his story and how he ended up there and and found his way there. So Johnny is a British tour guide and I had been told by my magazine editor, he's the guy you should make contact with and should show you around Kashmir. And indeed he was. He knew everyone and everywhere. And in the course of our days together, he told me how 25 years earlier, as a very, very young traveler, he'd come to Kashmir with his girlfriend and they stayed on a houseboat called the Dream Palace. And Mm. one night he woke up and his girlfriend couldn't breathe and he did everything he could and she was dead at the age of probably 23. And every traveler's nightmare and in a very difficult foreign place, there is your girlfriend, not only is she dead, but the police take him to be the number one suspect if it was not a natural Mm. death. And so suddenly his time in the paradise of Kashmir involves going to the police station, going to the coroner's office, making the most difficult phone call of all to his girlfriend's parents back in England. I mean, just a devastating thing. Mm. And, And then finally he went back to England. And I imagined after all that, the one place in the world he would never want to see again is Kashmir. But of course, I met him in Kashmir. And in fact, as soon as Kashmir opened to visitors again after some turmoil, he was the first professional tour guide operator to (laughs) go back. And he felt he wanted to help Kashmir, which is a region he'd always loved. But he also thought he could only repair his heart by going to the place where his heart had been shattered. And it also Mm. spoke, as you perfectly pointed out, to this duality that on the one hand, I, who was traveling there with Johnny, was like Johnny, trying to revive this place, which had suffered so much over 70 years of war. On on the other hand, <laughs> a tourist can only have a good time in Kashmir by sort of at times pretending that the war doesn't exist and sitting out on the lake in this stillness of this uh, paradisal setting. So as you said, it's a very complex hornet's nest, but Johnny really moved me by his resolve to go into the place that had been so difficult and really come through at the other on the other side and and now introduce many other people to Kashmir. Yes. I think what's also interesting about that it's a side note. Sometimes when I'm travel writing, I would almost ignore the travel guide. I would almost be chagrined that, okay, here I am with someone who's going to kind of open up this place for me, and somehow it'll kind of taint the wisdom of this ancient place, and not at all. You know, you wouldn't have encountered him otherwise, this character in, that's not a native of Kashmir, but still has wisdom and can still give you insight into a place. Yeah, thank you. That's an interesting perception. And it was very deliberate on my part that in almost every chapter here, I am, as you pointed out, in the hands of a guide, usually local or a driver. And I wanted 
to make sure that I'm always in the passenger seat. Because part of the point of the book, and I think part of the point of travel, is that, especially when I was younger, I assumed I was in the driver's seat. I was on top of everything, I could control everything, I could plan my day, and I knew everything. And the beauty of travel is it completely upends that. And I'm at the mercy of all kinds of things I can't begin to understand. And I'm very much metaphorically, and in this case, literally, in the passenger seat. And so one reason that I gave this book the title The Half-Known Life uh, is that was it the half known world? I keep forgetting. No, I think it's the half known. It's the half known life. Thank you. Half known life. Yeah. <laughs> One yeah. reason I gave that title is that I feel the amount that we really know is tiny. It's as if we're in a little tent up in the Himalayas, and maybe there are a couple of lanterns there, and we have a flashlight. But it's a small pocket of light in this vast darkness of the heavens above, pockmarked with stars, and the silvery mountains around. And basically, the field of our knowledge is tiny compared with everything. We don't know. And we are in the passenger seat. We are at the mercy of the elements and at the mercy of the guides and the locals who are showing us around. And um, so, yes, I think in my other books, I was nearly always describing just I traveling alone, unguided through cities I I couldn't make head nor tail of. But here, having the guides in almost every chapter was really essential. Yeah. As a reader, I respond to it because I know what it's like to hop in the back of a an Uber, or give myself over to yes, someone like yes, that. Yes, I yes. trust you as my guide, but it seems more honest or authentic in a sense that you are a passenger and then I am joining you uh, in a way. It, it makes for a different sort of reading experience. You know, I was having dinner with a companion as I was preparing for this and trying to explain what the book is about. I, th- I think that's why it's fitting. This book is called the subtitle. I'll let you know because you might not remember teasing. Uh, <laughs> the subtitle is uh, in, in the Half Known Life in Search of Paradise. It's about the search, and and ultimately, there is the fact that we just have to live in this in between the tension of the darkness and the light of knowing and not knowing. I, am I wrong in that? I mean, is that part of the reason it remains a search? It's there's no there's no discovery. Beautifully said. And I really, my heart goes out to you trying to explain what this book is about because it's impossible. <laughs> and to most people, I think it's just an enigma. It's one of the harder books to characterize deliberately. But ex- exactly what you said. And I think the search for paradise is actually what gets in the way of our finding the paradise, that it's our notions of paradise or our longing for something that we don't have that keeps us from seeing what we do have, uh, which may yeah. be the closest to paradise we get. And so that's why there's this sort of climatic moment, which, in fact, I, I don't fully describe in the book, but I'm in Varanasi, which is, as many people know, the, the most chaotic, terrifying, intense place in often chaotic, terrifying, intense India. For those who don't know, Varanasi, as I understand it, is um, people want to have their loved ones' bodies burned there. Over years, it's become like Lourdes or a magical place that's supposed to be a crossing ground and the auspicious place in which uh, a traditional Hindu can enter the afterworld. That's right. You burn the ashes and you put them into the river there. There are flames burning to the north and south 
reducing dead bodies to ash. There were people racing through the narrow lanes, carrying stretchers to commit their corpses to the flames and the holy waters. There were naked ascetics walking around who live in graveyards and drink from skulls to show their indifference to right and wrong. And there were people bathing in the holy waters and drinking from them, although they were they are 3,000 times beyond the maximal level found to be safe for consumption by the WHO. So I was in this mad scene. I'm a 100% Indian and Hindu by births, and even I'm freaked out by this. And suddenly mm. I heard somebody call my name, and it was two Tibetan Buddhist monks, uh, one an older Tibetan and one an American monk whom I knew from New York City. And as I surveyed this sort of psychedelic c- commotion, the American monk said, isn't this gorgeous? Uh, this is the whole thing. This is reality. This is life and death and everything in between. This is exactly what we have to grasp. This, he might as well have been saying, is paradise. This is, this is where mm. we have to find our paradise, right in the middle of the chaos and the death and the stuff that we can't begin to comprehend. And I thought that was almost exactly what the book was about in, in, in my eyes. Uh, I live in, in, yeah. in Japan, as you say, and often when I step into a temple in Kyoto, written on the ground at the entrance are the words, look beneath your feet. In other words, don't look to the future, to the past, and never, never land. Imagine that paradise is around the corner. Choose to find your paradise right where you are. Well, Pico, I think that's a lovely sentiment to end on. Actually, a lovely sentiment for a, a travel show to arrive at kind of find the paradise where you are. Thank you so much for coming by to discuss your book. It has really been a pleasure. Thank you for such a really rich and wonderful conversation. I think anyone listening can tell you and I could keep on going for three hours. So this has really been fun. That's a, that's a great compliment and gift. Pico Iyer's most recent book is The Half-Known Life in Search of Paradise. And that was such a great conversation. I had to leave some of it out. But among Pico's friends, the Dalai Lama, and the other was the late Leonard Cohen. So we had a lot to talk about, and he told me that Leonard will make an appearance in his next book. All right, coming up, musician, comedian, and improv maestro Reggie Watts comes by and talks, among other things, about the ghostwriter of his upcoming memoir. Chad GPT um, is... He's amazing. When Not Lost Chat returns. I've interviewed many successful people over the years. And one thing I find fascinating is that many of them don't consider themselves business savvy. Take the owners of Tightknit Brewing. They turn to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And do all of it in one place with the Chase mobile app. And that's helped these brew-loving friends turn a passion into a business. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member FDIC. Hello, hello. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. In my book, David and Goliath, I tried to figure out how some people find the strength to take on the established way of thinking and turn it upside down. What does it take to be a disruptor? And I concluded that a disruptor is someone with a rare combination of three traits. First, you have to be open. You have to be willing to see and do things in new ways. Secondly, you have to be conscientious. 
to follow through and make things happen. Those two are obvious, but the third one is the crucial one. You have to be willing to do what you think is right, even when everyone around you thinks you're an idiot. There isn't a brilliant innovator in history who wasn't surrounded by naysayers. Most of us can't take that kind of criticism and we fold, but the disruptor doesn't. They soldier on. I've been looking at disruptors and their success stories a lot lately, partly because I'm working on a follow-up to the tipping point and market disruption plays a key role in how ideas take off, but also because I'm going to be the keynote speaker at this year's unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business. It's an event where customers are recognized for kicking convention to the curb to elevate their company, while also doing meaningful things for their community and even the world. In fact, I'll be presenting the first ever Tipping Point designation, a new special distinction honoring one entrant that sparked transformative change for their organization. If this event sounds like your thing, I encourage you to find out more or even enter the unconventional awards to be recognized for your disruptive thinking. Win a donation to a charity of your choice and much more. You can enter before July 31st at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. I'll save you a seat. Ready? Okay. Give me a beach. Beach. Give me great food. Tacos. Give me adventure. Hiking. Give me a date night. Sunset cruise. Give me some smiles. Cheese. Give me more beaches. Beaches. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Welcome back to Not Lost Chat. We are now at the etiquette portion of our episode, and I am joined by Reginald, Lucy, and Frank Roger Watts, better known as Reggie Watts. He came up as a musician in Seattle and then made some appearances on TV. You may have seen him on Comedy Bang Bang. Uh, he is now leader of the house band for The Late Late Show with James Corden. He is an absolute American original, although born in Stuttgart, with his mother's from France, but he was raised in Great Falls, Montana, and his upcoming memoir is named Great Falls, Montana. That comes out later next year. And when I spoke with him, I asked him about the book. For someone who is so famous for improving, was it anxiety producing to put pen to paper and just really capture his ideas once and for all? Man, you know, I never really thought of it that way. That's interesting. Um... Yeah, I, I think I think what made that not happen so much, or at least that, you know, the possibility of that that vibe happening is because I worked with a really great ghostwriter um, who works just like I've always loved to work, like whether it was experimental theater or coming up with uh, bits for my early shows and things like that. Like, I just have a writing partner who I could just relay the ideas that flow into my head and just like put it out there and then they kind of format it and organize it. And I chose him as a, as a writer because uh, his name's Chris Farah mm. and uh, he, uh, I chose him because he's from the Midwest. Uh, so Montana's got to share some sensibilities with the Midwest 
and obviously I would help craft and shape the language and we I would read things with him in his presence. I would just we would just read through the pages and I'd be like, I wouldn't do that. I, I would say that or so and then he would touch it up. And so that process allowed me to not have to have that terrifying feeling that I get when someone's like, here's a script, yeah. <laughs> you know, or like write a script, you know, yeah. <laughs> like that that to me is so terrifying because everything I do is just let's just do it live. Even, like, even your Netflix we... specials. Oh yeah. 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 Spatial was fully improvised. I just did two. I always like to do two or three shows and then composite them together. Right, right. Even the uh, improv with Rory Scovel and Kate Berlant um, for the fictional nineties yeah. sitcom uh, crow's nest was me just before we were going on stage. Like all we had was wardrobe. The most important thing for yeah. me was knowing that we had the right wardrobe. Once we had the wardrobe, we were just about to go on stage, and I'd be like, uh, "Let's just do a physical take where we're not really talking; we're just doing physical bits." Yeah. And then they're like, "Okay," and then we just go up and did it. That is and remarkable. I love it. It's so freeing. I just love so it. So your so your your co-author is ChatGPT. Is yeah, 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 exactly. yeah. Of course, ChatGPT. Yeah, ChatGPT yeah. really gets it right. I'm glad, well, I didn't know it was from the Midwest. Right. I didn't realize that it was a Gen Xer. But... No, Chad Chad GPT <laughs> um, is yeah, he's amazing. Gotcha. Um, I actually worked at Yellowstone National Park years ago, and then I left because it was crazy, which I don't even feel like counts as Montana. And I went back to my first season of this show, and it was so clear to me, I felt so still unmanly in Montana. Like, I felt so inadequate as a city kid. Uh, What was your relationship to that? Do you feel like the masculinity in Montana is uh, different (laughs) than on the coast? I think so, 100%. I think there's, um, yeah, it's a really good question because I've never really thought of it in that way. But I think what it is is, I mean, there's definitely like a lot of tradition when it comes to the way that sexes and genders, you know, uh, collaborate together. But I think there's like, they're a little bit more equal, generally speaking, Mm. than uh, in other places, perhaps, just because practicality is kind of king in montana yeah pragmatism practicality yeah uh preparedness um helpfulness flexibility dynamicism these types of things are key because people are outdoors there's a lot of outdoorsmen uh outdoors persons you know that just we go out there like you know i remember my friend's dad dropping us off with backpacks and it was just like (laughs) me and my friend steve (laughs) and we just yeah it was in the winter we had to dig out snow and chip away at the ground and make a fire pit. So, you know, and then he'd come, he'd like, I'll pick you up on Sunday, you know. Like, <laughs> that sounds terrifying. Like, it sounds like the beginning of a true it, crime it, podcast. It's kind of terrifying, but like when you have the gear and you know the basics, it's actually great. It's like super freeing. So so that actually, I can, that, that naturally kind of jives with this travel theme, the loose travel theme of these chats, which is so what, when you do have time off, when you are not professionally touring, what do you do for kicks? Where do you go? Where does Reggie relax? You know, I rarely go on vacations or I'll have an, I'll have a vacation at the end of a tour. Like I'll stay in the last city. So I love hanging out in Berlin. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of my favorite cities. Mm. And uh, I went to uh, Salem recently for the weekend before Halloween to mm. kind of go on some um, history tours and learn about yeah. witch trials and all that stuff. That was really cool. Um Trying to think if I've got, you know, I've gone like, you know, to cabins and things like that for a weekend. But uh, yeah, I don't know. It's it's very rare that I do. But the thing is, like, whenever I go to these places, I feel like I might as well do a show. Right. 
Yeah. You know, cause, cause my show isn't like, I'm not preparing for the show. I'm not writing a show. I just <laughs> yeah. show up. And if I have my gear or even if I don't have my gear, I can still do a show. So I figure like, why not do a show? Because it's, it's fun. And it, you know, it's like helps offset the cost of the vacation, whatever. All right. Well, look, I, I have some etiquette questions from, from okay. my audience that you're going to help with your, cause you're a wise man. Um, <clears throat> you're going to improvise if you're not a wise man and that, and it will work. So this first question uh, comes from Crystal from Tulsa, Oklahoma. And Crystal asks, if I'm in the window seat, is it rude to keep the shade open while I know other people around me are trying to sleep? Yes. <laughs> yes, okay. 100%. Yeah. It's a weird one because obviously you're next to the window. So you're like, I You've controlled got that. the window seat because I wanted to, you know, maybe you like to look outside or something like that. But if it's really bright and you see that most of the shades around you are closed and people are sleeping... I don't know. I just close the shade. I mean, at that altitude, like, what do you, what do, what do you get? Some clouds and some <laughs> landmass, you know, open it, take a look, close it, you right. know, and then m maybe rest or like watch right. something or think about something. But I always defer to the majority around me. Interesting. I do feel like I try to give the middle seat. I empower them because they're in a tough spot. So yes. kind of like tie goes to the middle seat is kind of my, my thought. But I will say what I don't like in this department is... I'll often get into a plane, close it because the sun's beating me in the head. And then then sometimes it only happens 60 percent of the time. So I don't know if it's a rule or not. Um, a, a flight attendant will come by and say, excuse me, you need to have the shade open for liftoff. Yeah, that's like, true. Like, what is this? The Wright brothers? Like, like this is going to determine our death or not? Like, like, what is that about? I, I think it's about uh, I think I, someone because I, I wondered about that, too. And yeah. I think it has something to do with. um situational awareness hmm. um and it's like it's just a small point of failure like for if an emergency occurs or something like that something's I, going wrong yes. they'll have a better read on where it's happening if they can count yes. the windows or something i it, i think it's that it feels pretty Even, it feels pretty small bore i know yeah no, um all right this next question goes from molly from charlotte and molly writes my boyfriend's parents want to take us on vacation but they want all four of us to share a hotel room <laughs> to save costs. My boyfriend doesn't think this is weird, but I do. How can I get out of this? Well, <laughs> she is right. That's yeah, weird. I, uh, I think so. I it think also so. depends on how old the relationship is, hmm. you know, um, because obviously if you've spent a lot of time together already, maybe you can kind of both decide like, well, this will be weird, but let's just see what it's like. Yeah. Um, but. I'm a big fan. I need my space. This now. is very I, intimate. Um, I mean, they, the parents got to feel like that's weird. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. You know I what mean, I, unless yeah. the parents want to control it, you know, if they want to like, they want to go on vacation, but they don't want to have the stress of imagining that they're, you know. That Molly is making love yeah. with her boyfriend. Yeah, the, the making love next door. Like, that freaks us out. Let's just keep them in sight. I don't know. It's just a little weird. All right. Yeah. Th that's your answer, Molly. Um, not okay, but good luck. <laughs> How can I get out of this? I don't I don't know what to tell you. Uh, um, okay. A couple more questions. Um, this one I feel like is made tailor-made for you. It doesn't have a name attached. I'll make one up. Jacob Smith from Santa Monica writes, Ooh. In a few weeks, I'm going to be a plus one at a destination wedding where I don't know anyone except my partner. Any tips? I would say like, hopefully the partner, you know, recognizes that there's a it's a little incumbent on them to kind of ease sure. you into the situation and maybe them thinking about people knowing you and then thinking about the people that are going to be there, like which people you think that you'd get along with. 
you know, introducing them, whatever, or like, you know, announcing common interests, things like that. I think, think of it as an adventure. Be open-minded. Try not to be super resistant. I've definitely been in that that vibe where I'm like, oh, I don't, oh, I don't want to go, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. A little two-way, but like you got to kind of make a little bit of an extra effort to yeah. be stoked, you know, as much as you can. To me, this sounds like a dream. This means like, oh, vacation, free food, dress oh, yeah. up, dance, and I'm not going to be embarrassed because I don't know anybody. Like I have That's zero true. responsibilities yeah. except to my partner. That feels pretty dreamy. Like I just have to sit there and maybe be charming and not a jerk. Like that's like my preferred mode. I, of, I like this. Of living. I like this. But and if yeah. you're anxious, I get that not everyone's an extrovert, but you can still take joy in nothing is expected of you except to like be supportive of your partner. Stakes are low. This is like free meals for days. Uh, agreed. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. Another bonus tip. Yeah. So there you go. I, I, enjoy. And if, <laughs> if, if you can't go, you know my email. I'll go with your partner as long as yeah. destination is nice. Yeah. Um, all right. This is our last question. It comes from Lucy, and Lucy asks, if one partner has a TSA pre-check and the other does not, <laughs> should, we know already. where this is going. Should the TSA pre-check partner stand in the regular line, or should they soldier on to the gate? Soldier on to the gate. I mean, come on. It's like, why'd you get TSA pre-check? It's <laughs> like, also, if you, the reason, usually when people get TSA pre-check, it's because they don't want to deal with the bullshit the yeah. extra bullshit that yeah. you have to go through normally. Yeah. So if that's like an anxiety reducing thing, yeah. I think your partner would understand. And also yeah. your partner should just get TSA or get global entry. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully you're not in a codependent relationship. But I mean, like, I've had this cut both ways because I have global entry. Really? Yeah, global and, entry. And I've had people that's be like, go ahead. One. And I hop on the other side and then you can kind of text them, be like, hey, I'll get you a snack yeah, and you're totally. kind of there and you kind of can receive them. Yeah. Um, but I've also been in partnerships where they've been like, basically, you failed a test. Like, I cannot believe. You abandoned me. Yeah, you abandoned me. And then I had to go through this hell line. And it's like, you know what? This cost $60 and took like yes. not that long. <laughs> that's 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 totally that's that's my that's my thing. Like I'm like it depends on the type of person you are, you know, but like when you're in a relationship, I think you're supposed to encourage, you know, if someone else has an opportunity, take the opportunity. Yeah. So it's like about independence and not code it's interdependence, not codependence. I I can't stand the codependent thing. I need to be yeah. with people that are like, no, I don't worry about it. I've got it. And you're like, okay, gotcha. cool. And you know, hopefully they're just like, yeah, that's what I would fucking do. Yeah. You know? get, get, get hip, get hip. Yeah. Um, all right. Reggie Watts, thank you so much for giving some travel etiquette to my audience. Easy. And, uh, Oh, can and, I add one thing to travel tips? Yeah, please. Um, uh, don't check bags. Oh, interesting. I never check bags. Haven't checked bags since 2012. Interesting. Okay. Never. And that includes all my gear. And I know wow. some people, some people obviously like. Yeah. How they, can you bring all your gear on that? On, in, they're, uh, they're fashionistas and they need their, you know, three pairs of shoes and stuff like that. That's a little bit. I, I understand. But if you can, there are smart ways to pack light. Uh, and if you, if you run into more, if you need stuff, you can always get more stuff basics or whatever along the there way. There is that. Well, they did lose my bag this summer in Portugal and I now, I now bought a check-in bag. So I'm with you. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Rock and roll symbol. Reggie Waz, thanks so much for coming by. My pleasure. Reggie Watts. You can catch him on TV on The Late Late Show with James Corden, where he's the band leader, or keep your eyes peeled because... 
He often performs his mind-altering variety of comedy and music at venues around the country. Okay, so that's it for this edition of Not Lost Chat. And that's it for this inaugural season of Not Lost Chats. I used to scoff at the notion of a travel show taking place in a studio, but our guests from Andrew Sean Greer to Jessica Nabongo to Jeff Dyer to Charles Strait to Pico Iyer, they all gave me so much inspiration and food for thought that I was transported, as you will, away from the studios. I am about to thank all of the people who helped put this show together, but first, uh, at risk of being corny, I'd like to thank you for listening. Creating Not Lost Season 1 was the most difficult and yet most satisfying endeavor of my life so far, and the reception it received from folks like you was part of that joy. For those who stuck around for this season of chats, and if you're listening to this, by definition, you are one of those people, uh, thank you so much. Perhaps someday I can trick you into inviting me over for dinner. This final episode of the season of Not Lost Chat was partially produced by Jordan Bailey, Jacob Smith, and Sarah Bruguer. For better or worse, the whole thing was written and hosted by me, Brendan Francis Noonan. Booking assistance, as usual, came from Laura Morgan. This episode was edited by Julia Barton, who, in a couple months, will be coming out with her maiden audiobook, Best Audio Nonfiction 2022. It is filled with some gems. Alas, Not Lost didn't make the cut. But who's bitter about that? Not me. I'm not. Jacob Smith was also the managing producer in this episode, and he did that with crutches, which is no easy feat. Uh, Fortunately, someone who wasn't on crutches, despite a recent weekend snowboarding, Sarah Bruguer, who is our producer and mix engineer. I really can't thank her enough for all the hard work she's put into making this season happen. Thank you, Sarah. You're probably listening to this late in the evening, and we may slack about when to post this episode. Not Lost is a co-production of Pushkin Industries, Topic Studios, and iHeartMedia. It was developed at Topic Studios. And the executive producers include me, Brendan Francis Noonan, Christy Gressman, Maria Zuckerman, Lisa Langang, and Latal Malad. It is not too late to tell people about this show. I made these chat episodes what is called in the biz Evergreen, so they will never go out of season. So if you have someone in your life interested in travel, tell them about it. And if you want to tell the world about it, make a comment at Apple Podcasts. It's all greatly appreciated. And while you're waiting for more episodes of Not Lost, you can check out some other Pushkin podcasts. Jacob Smith is also the mastermind behind Deep Cover. Death of an Artist is a great show that we made. Story of the Week is a very funny, interesting show that comes out. Lots of good stuff out there. You can listen and find them all on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. That is it for this episode. Thank you, everybody. I am somewhere right now drinking a margarita. I raise it to you. Bon voyage. Ready? Let's go. Give me a vacation. Vacation! Give me a golf course. 70 courses! Let's get a water sport. Can I get excursion? Time for chill vibes. Beach yoga. How about a garden tour? Apple Park. Give me a dolphin. What's that spell? San Diego! If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. 
Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. You never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without the essentials. So it's best to always pack a Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie to protect against the sun. I mean, it provides great protection, and it's really breathable so you don't get hot. That's a win-win. Columbia PFG has a lot of great gear. So before you head out on the water, head over to Columbia.com PFG to shop their performance fishing gear. 